From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. Did you ever wonder how a computer can be trained to beat a human at chess? Or how Amazon seems to anticipate what you're looking for before typing your request in the search bar? Or how is it that the Uber app always seems to know the fastest route to your destination? All of these technologies rely on the same thing, artificial intelligence, or more specifically, machine learning, where computers are able to not only use past information, but to also test future possibilities to find the best way. To some people, this topic can be a bit unnerving as they struggle with the idea that machines are taking over our world. But to me, this is an incredible opportunity to make our world a better place. One of the people that sees a better future is Danny Lang, who has led AI research at some of the world's most well-known companies, IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, and Uber and now is applying his expertise at Unity, where they are leveraging the complexity of video games to push the technology even further. In our conversation, we explore the difference between artificial and human intelligence. If AI can make the leap from curiosity to creativity, and some lessons learned working at some of the biggest technology companies in the world. We had an incredible conversation, but I was most struck by Danny's insight that when it comes to AI, The real skill of the future is to understand consequences, to understand the impact of what we're doing. While AI engineers will still need to be technically talented, they will also need to have a deep understanding on the human impact of their decisions and the biases that are part of our decisions, both past and present, so we can make the world how we want it to be, not just recreate the way it has always been. As Danny says, one of the benefits of AI is that it allows us humans to focus more on what it means to be human. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Danny, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Thank you very much and thank you for having me here. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, I am too. So let me start with a little bit of story about when I was growing up, I taught myself to program in BASIC. I think initially it was on the infamous TI-99 computer, and then eventually I upgraded with my entire life savings and bought an Apple IIe, 
where I actually decided I was going to write code to make the Pong video game. Now, you and I probably can relate to that. Much of our audience will have no idea what we're talking about. But uh, it was really a fun way for me to learn to solve problems. I, I guess my question for you is, what drew you to computers initially? And do you remember the first thing that you actually created on one? Yeah, I do. I started out very early. I, I don't know, 12, 11, 12 years old and, and got really interested in electronics. And everybody around me were building amplifiers, uh, light controls for music, uh, you know, disco light kind of thing. And the only thing I really looked in the books after and what I wanted to build was digital stuff. I don't know why. It just really appealed to me. So I actually started building my own computer very early on. And from early on, I was really moving from, from the, the analog hardware to the digital hardware to actually programming that hardware. That was sort of the magic to me. And I think it was the flexibility, the virtualness that I built one piece of hardware and, and now I can do anything I want with it. Yeah. So that's the idea of software, yeah. Before you joined Unity, I know that you helped develop the artificial intelligence technology at some of probably the world's most famous companies. I think IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, Uber. And while I want to get into some of those experiences, can you kind of start out first of all and tell us what's your definition of artificial intelligence? Because we hear the use word used all the time, and I'm not sure anyone knows exactly what that means. My definition is that artificial intelligence is when you have a computer system that learns on its own from data. There's a lot of AI, and there's been a lot of AI around for many years that is really, really smart people creating really smart algorithms that, you know, implement uh, chess playing programs, checker playing, uh, recommendation systems. But all of that is really just human ingenuity. What, what AI is to me is it, it's the systems that consume data, learn from the data, and then being, when being used can now make predictions around input they have never seen before. I, I know that in a lot of your work, you know, you're learning as they go. I think you've called it did, in machine learning. You need to think more like Werner Heisenberg than Isaac Newton. And yeah. I thought this was a very interesting quote. So maybe you can explain this a little bit more what this means. It's actually a key thing. Let's start with Newton. Yeah. Newton basically believed in the clockwork universe that everything past, present, and future can be computed. If you just have the data, you can compute what's going to happen next. Yeah. But then when Heisenberg came around and basically said, well, there's an uncertainty principle here. Yeah. In quantum mechanics, there's this uncertainty. There's, if you know one thing really well, there's other things that you cannot know. There is also an inherent randomness that put together, uh, is really the essence of AI, is the essence of machine learning. So Heisenberg is all about these distributions of probabilities, yeah? It's actually back to quantum uh, mechanics. It's, you know, where's the electron gonna be? Well, it's gonna be in this area here. It can be out here, uh, it's less likely, yeah? But we actually don't know where it is. Software should be like that. That's how we should think about software. And that's actually the essence of machine learning. Some people have asked me, 
what's the difference between artificial intelligence and human intelligence? Are there limits? And so from your perspective, are there limits? I really don't like comparing them. I, I think more of, uh, I, I want to think more of different species here. Yeah? Humans, we are one species. We kind of tend to understand at least marginally how, how we are intelligent and how individuals of our own species are intelligent. But when, when you go to a dog, you go to a cat, you go to a bird, what does their intelligence mean to you? It's really, really hard to get, get inside their brain in a sense and, and get an understanding Yeah, uh, that that builds up uh, an image of the world through uh, ultrasound reflections. It's like, what does that look like? Yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah. So when it comes to machine intelligence, it's, 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 it's going to be very, very difficult to compare. And, and let, me give you, let me give you an example. When, when DeepMind built AlphaGo to play Go, and that system beat the world champion, yeah? two years later, they built AlphaZero. AlphaZero was sort of a more purist reinforcement learning system that learned to play Go through self-play. And it trained for 40 days and would beat AlphaGo, the previous system, 100 to 0. They trained for 40 days. We now have a new Go-playing system. It's better than the old. Yeah. And my, my question to these guys were, so why didn't you train for 41 days or 42 days? Or what happened if you would train for 50 days? When you beat someone 100 to 0, so even if the system gets smarter and smarter, it still only beats people 100 to zero, yeah? I mean, like, you can't measure, and here comes the point, you can't really, it's very, very difficult to measure that intelligence now, yeah? How, what do you compare with, yeah? I, I prefer to keep it as an apples and oranges, yeah? Uh, there may be things where the machine intelligence is, is, is good. You look at it and say it solves that problem really well. But to actually compare apples to oranges, it's it's kind of I find it very very difficult to, to go down that path. I'm interested in innovation generally. That's what we like to talk about on the podcast, and and what makes some people more innovative than others. And so when I think about AI, I wonder, can it address human concepts like what I'll call anticipation or this idea where when we were building Cree. Some people were really good at connecting what seemed like two unrelated ideas. Like they, they take this idea from over here and over here, bring it down, and we try something new. And do you think AI can do those same things? I think so. But we have to be careful because we sort of put a lot of interpretation to it sort of as humans. We, we think about anticipation in, in certain very complex terms, yeah? Um, and we are talking about machines here, and they're a little more square kind of insight, yeah? Um, but, but with the exploration, the system will probe around and try out other things, yeah? Take that a step further and, and think about that as a, as a first step towards a more creative, automated process, yeah? without getting into too loaded terms that some of the functionality that we define or identify or recognize as creative thinking, as uh, innovative thinking, that some of those things can be achieved by computers, can be explored uh, at scale. And we, we have to remember computers are really good to that last thing, the, the at scale thing. Yeah, So they don't even have to be as 
as innovative as us in a sense, they can basically compensate by a lot of trial and error until they get success. Yeah. What controls how much trial and error is that? Does in other words, you have this exploration feature, but I assume that that the limits of the exploration feature are somehow predetermined in the code, or does that actually change over time as well? Well, that exploration is a whole science in itself. Uh, that exploration has traditionally been pure random, which is highly inefficient. There are very distinct uh, policies that we as humans apply. Yeah, uh, One of them is curiosity. Yeah, Curiosity means that rather than exploring randomly, we explore what we are curious about. And you can, you can then go into, we can start arguing what curiosity, what, what defines something being curious. But in its simplest terms, it's sort of, I look around and the thing I can, I can predict the least about. The thing, I look at it and say, I have no idea why it's behaving like that. Well, I will investigate that first. That's what good scientists, they do. They're just curious because they keep looking for stuff they can't explain. That's a part of exploration, yeah. There can be many, many different aspects of efficient exploration, yeah. But random is probably the most inefficient. And that's actually the most predominant today in computers. So I want to switch a little bit to kind of your career a little more. I know that you're now at Unity and you apply AI technology to games. So after this career at some of these other really interesting companies, what drew you to Unity? You would like to be surprised. It's all about the data. So at Microsoft, we had a lot of data, but not quite enough. So I went to Amazon because Amazon has a lot of data, a lot more data, yeah? So that was really interesting. Uh, then I looked at, at Uber and they have even more data because they, they have all this trip information and uh, it's, 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 it's a very complex world with vehicles moving around and customers, you know, moving around. Building self-driving cars is like, it's just amazing technology, but it's all data-driven, yeah? And what I realized at one point is that Real-world data is limited, it's expensive to get, there are privacy concerns, there's bias, you know, even when you pick up data from the world around you, I mean, like, you pick up data from one city, oh, it's biased, it doesn't represent other cities, yeah. So I quickly got to the point where I realized I need to have an environment that can create all this data for me for free. What is better than a game engine? Three dimensions, graphical rendering, physics, things fall down, they hit each other. Uh, there, you can just dial it up and you can generate all the data you need, whether that is for a self-driving car or robot or even problem solving yeah, in a game. So games are data generators. That is really interesting. So basically, the game becomes the best living laboratory for not only data, but lots of new inputs, right? Because it's not stagnant data, right? Every new player adds in variability that the machine has to learn from. There is a 70-year-long history of bot games being used as the vehicle for AI research. The first paper was submitted in October 1949. Uh, saying that, you know, these electromechanical computers 
would really benefit from being applied to a thing like chess, because that would allow them to develop new and interesting algorithms. And board games and later video games have been a key driver for the development of AI, because you have all the complexities of, you know, a mini representation of real world complexities at very low cost and infinite amounts. Yeah. So you see AI uh, being driven by games. And then, of course, you flip that around and say, well, then AI can drive games too. And that is so interesting. So look, at one point in your career, you co-founded a company called, I think it's Vocomo, where you were working on an interactive voice response. And you said the technology was going to be was not going to be good enough for the next 10 years. We were too early. But yet today it's everywhere. And so do you think with the benefit of hindsight, you could have done something differently to make it a success at the time? Or do sometimes you just need to let things take time and work them out? So Vogum was founded on this idea that uh, we can script you script basically these voice systems. You, we, uh, I was in another company called General Magic before founding Vocomo, and we were scripting these dialogues. And when we founded Vocomo, the idea was that I can computerize all that. I can automate all those scripts. So it will speak to you dynamically. It will create the grammars and understand what you're saying. Siri and Alexa are not quite there today. <laughs> Yeah, you were, that, that was far, how far ahead it was, yeah, because it's actually really difficult. But really made it difficult for us on top of that was, of course, the speech recognition engines were not as good as they are nowadays. Yeah, So we would often have one out of five utterances would be misrecognized. To your point, when, when, when do you throw the towel in and when do you, uh, when, when do you keep going? Yeah. And... I think it's very, very important innovation that you, um, and maybe we can talk about more about this later, but I think it's very important that you learn when to cut your losses so, so that you don't dig yourself into a hole. Because if you're 20 years too early, that's a long time to sort of keep digging that hole and waiting for the world to catch up, yeah? You could probably do a lot of useful things in those 20 years, yeah? You've described yourself as a visionary person that cares about the practical applications. But I've worked with a number of very brilliant scientists, mostly in the area of physics at Cree, who sometimes struggled with managing the tension between practical and brilliance. And so, do you have advice for people on how you manage that tension? That's a very good question. I, I mean, like, if I could answer it, maybe that <laughs> there's some huge reward in that because it's uh, it's complex. Yeah, it, it, we are all very different, and we approach things uh, in very different ways. And that's, by the way, very very important. What I do think is that a very good, a very good sort of measure or measurement stick is this practical applicability of what you're working on. I use that personally. I don't think, I, I'm not saying you should use it every time, but I use it a lot because, because it keeps you sort of within some distance of reality. I know people who would only look at the practicality all the time. I mean, like, then, then you kind of, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like arranging a focus group before you build a product. You ask the customer what they want, 
yada, 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 yada. That's not what I'm talking about. I talk about having, I often talk about gut feeling. You have a strong sense that something is really needed. Uh, and, and that needed part, that's the important one. You, you have to, there needs to be some way for you to measure whether you're on the right track. And I use, personally, I often use applicability as that measurement stick. That, that's the thing I evaluate and say, yeah, I'm on the right track here. People can use this. Not everybody's using it yet, but we are getting there, yeah? That's great advice. So I want to give you uh, a little rapid-fire section here. You have worked for some of the world's most well-known companies, and what I'd ask you to do is pick one learning from each of these companies that you took away. And so maybe I'll start with IBM. So a lot of people criticize IBM and ridicule and say they're slow or whatever. And, and I think what you, have to, what you have to recognize is, yes, they are slow. And they are slow with a purpose and for a reason. And that is that what they do is long-term. It is thought out. It's not flashy. They're very, it's a very methodical company. Yeah. And I think I often use that. I'm very happy for my time at IBM, some of my best time. Yeah. Uh, I often think about that being grounded, being, you know, being solid, yeah, being determined, and being for the very, very long run. How about Microsoft? Microsoft is, is also interesting. And I don't want to offend anyone, but if I want to call Microsoft something, it's a bit like a country club. Yeah. Because we have a, there's a good environment. I was there for nine years. Yeah, I don't want to have any negative connotation here, but there's a there's a sense of entitlement. Uh, there's a sense of immense resources that we think really strategic about things, and then we build them, and uh, they may reach you know half a billion people or more if we succeed. Yeah, but there's not that desperate urgency, for instance, that you see some other places, yeah, which is also good, but also a little bad, yeah. So how about Amazon? <laughs> yeah, so as Amazon, the thing I really love there is this is, is actually the real ownership, yeah. Everybody really owns their thing. Everything is relatively urgent. It's a patient company, but everything is, is, is urgent, yeah. I, I actually really loved working there because you felt very much in control. You had the, the two pizza team size, you know, you control it, you build stuff, you deliver stuff. Uh, if it doesn't work, you build it again or you build something else. It goes very fast. Yeah. I like that atmosphere a lot. It's very different from Microsoft. And, but both Microsoft and Amazon are very successful corporations, but with very different approaches. Yeah, I would think, honestly, if we take IBM, Microsoft, and Amazon, they're all quite different, but all successful in their own ways. Um, how about Uber? Yeah, Uber, Uber was more like Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> a, lot of, uh, a lot of teams uh, just competing, you know, two or more teams building the same thing, and that was okay. Whoever gets there first wins, something like that. I would find that maybe in Microsoft and uh, especially in Microsoft and in Amazon a little, you know, there's a lot of people spending a lot of energy trying to prevent other people from doing. I didn't see much of that at, at Uber. You just run really fast, take a shot at it. What could possibly go wrong? Well, everything, that kind of, uh, that kind of attitude. I would say that in Uber's case, again, highly successful in certain areas, but that kind of rushed 
approach, if you sort of compare the other scale with IBM, that rushed approach led to, to maybe to too many failures that had too many spillovers and, and caused a little much to injury to the company too. I, I, I think they are fixing. I, I, I really think that Dara is fixing that now. That looks like that. If you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible, please check out my new book, The Innovator's Spirit, where I explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible. It is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. Do you think that your success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? Yeah, uh, no doubt here. I mean, like I am uh, constantly pursuing failure. The only way to make change is to, to try to do the impossible. And I, I did this back, even back to my, my days as, a, as my, my first job ever, uh, just out of school. It was building something where the headquarters said, no, that can't, that's impossible. We can't do that. Yeah. And we we're like, we we're two guys and we we're like, yeah, we can do it. And, and we could, which was sort of good. And everybody was like surprised. And I think that set me on a path where if someone tells me, uh, we don't do that here, or you can't do that, or then it's a bit like that's kind of waving a red uh, cloth in front of me and, and, and be like, you know, I, I think that's, that's how you make change. So if you're going to pursue innovation, like when you build your teams to do this, what's more important to the team's success? Uh, a culture that is focused on the brutal truths or one that's really built around psychological safety? Yeah. So it's, um, I pursue brutal truth. Sometimes in corporate settings, it can be very difficult to say, hey, we did really poorly here, or the algorithm we developed or the product we deployed, it sucks. I think it's so important to just say that. And the only way you can say that without harming the company, the project, the employees, is if you build in a culture where you accept the brutal truth and you accept that there's no blame for failure. I think it's very, very important to fail without blame. That can be cause of failure, yeah, uh, but no blame. So when you're confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box, build a better box, or set the box on fire? I would wrap, unwrap the box. I would wrap the box open. I, I think it's important not to dismiss being inside the box either. There's a context, yeah. There's some knowledge. Uh, it could be existing solutions, existing customers, known limits. But staying inside the box, that's the problem, yeah. Then you just get more of the same. So I like to unwrap it and create a perspective that includes the box and its content and also what's outside the box. And basically just look at the whole, the whole picture and understand that uh, we bring the best of the box with us as we expand and go outside the box, yeah. When you're evaluating talent for your team, what is the quality that you think is most important to someone's future success? It's actually the team as a whole. You want to have a team that has all, all the, the right ingredients. 
let, let's take a, a sport comparison here. Like it can be a, a basketball team or a soccer team or a football team. Yeah, you wanna you you wanna have different types. You wanna have fill different roles. Yeah, and you wanna make sure that that you have a team that's complete. Yeah, you don't wanna have a team of of just uh, all you know innovators competing you know and stepping on each other's toes and nobody gets anything ever built yeah and or do you want to have sort of a very very uh, safe and and slow moving environment either you need you, you really need to look at people and say this person is this individual is fantastic they're going to fill this role on my team uh, that we currently don't we don't have that kind of person on board yeah it actually speaks into significantly into something i believe a lot in which is diversity i have tried it i have hired people who come from very different backgrounds and they will say something in a meeting where i'm like wow i don't know if you're wrong or it's just something i never thought about yeah and typically it's me yeah who never thought about something yeah so i think uh, hiring for diversity, which really means hiring for diverse thinking, really creates these teams uh, that can be, you know, overperforming. So if you're if you're interviewing two candidates for the same job, and let's say one of them is just highly skilled in data science or in programming, or just has some unique technical knowledge, but maybe on the culture mindset side is not quite as good a fit. And then you have someone that's really a great fit on the culture mindset, but is less skilled in the art of the, the real technical problem that you have to solve. Which way do you come down on that? How do you think about that? You know, if you're very, very strong, very technically strong, that's always, you know, that's always gonna, gonna be recognizable. You're always gonna gonna find out during the interviews. It's a good thing to be technically strong and solid, yeah. But it's not always the only thing that you need on the team, yeah. We also need at least one dreamer on the team, yeah, who who, who can sort of keep looking ahead. Yeah, I have had uh, at Unity, I've experienced uh, and uh, I experienced some examples where someone comes up with something that. Uh, is sort of a very simple idea, something I never thought about. And, you know, four weeks later, I realized this is like a major, major opportunity for us. Yeah. I, I just had no idea. I never thought about it. Yeah. That kind of people are very, very precious. Yeah. You want to make sure you get that kind of people on board who dares to come with the, to you with an idea. You're going to look, I'm going to look a little strange in my face and say, hmm. I'm, I'm I'm not sure about that, and and they they just go away and plug away a little more, a week or two more, and they come back and and they move me, and then I start re researching the you know, googling or whatever, and figure out wow, but other people doing this, or maybe there's nobody doing this. This is an opportunity for us. Yeah, that team configuration is is very very important. It's also uh, very important that it's right in time. So when you go to make a decision. Uh, especially around the business, but honestly, in any situation, would you describe your approach as more about limiting downside or maximizing upside? I think we're given a very <laughs> limited time on earth. So I want to maximize up, uh, upside at any given moment. Yeah. I mean, like it's uh, many, many, many years ago, I was a student and 
I was attending a uh, a lecture on hypertext. Yeah. Someone, you know, gave a lecture. This is back in the eighties. A lecture on Vannevar Bush and his idea of hypertext. Yeah. I still I still remember the date, June fifteenth that year. And I sat in that meeting. I walked away and said, "Wow, if you implement this kind of thing worldwide, let's say on uh, on the internets." That would be amazing, yeah. Um, and that was actually my first. I, had to, I ended up working with Tim Berners-Lee for some time, and um, uh, that that became the World Wide Web eventually. Not just me, you know. Other people thought the same thing at the same time. Uh, and I look back and it's like, there's not. There was not a minute to lose in that one. Let's do it. Let's change the world. Yeah. Um, I would always go for that. As artificial intelligence gains and be- plays a bigger role in all kinds of different machines and other areas, what is the role of the software engineer or the data scientist in terms of starting to think about some of the, the real-world challenges that come with ethics and morality and these other things? I know that Marquette being a Jesuit school, you know, we spend part of our time getting technical skills and part of our time getting a bit of that Jesuit thinking, which means they don't really tell us what the answer is. They want us just to learn how to think about uh, the questions and maybe a different approaches to them. How does this how does this fit into the future of the the people that are writing these this code for us? Yeah. Oh, wonderful question. Yes. So the software engineers, the data scientists, their days of being the the brains behind this are you know disappearing yeah these systems uh a lot of the stuff we're doing uh is is really about setting things up the right way you know have the right algorithm off the shelf uh, the right data the right simulation the right application yeah so the role of the data scientist the software engineer the human role in engineering it is diminishing I'm not saying people shouldn't study this any longer, but but the clock is counting. The good thing about that is that the thing that is way more relevant to us as humans, which are things like purpose, the ethical aspects, things that we as humans are much better at, uh, artistic side. Yeah, I mean, like I don't want to see art created by a computer. So when it comes to AI, the real skill of the future is to understand consequences, to understand the impact of what we're doing, to be able to control the systems so that they do what we want them to do. Because they're going to go on and do, these systems are going to evolve and do things that sort of they, whoever they are, want to do. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, like, if you look at a lot of uh, challenges that some leading uh, tech corporations got into, it's not that the CEO or the CTO or the VP of engineering sat, sat down and said at the SEC team meeting, you know, let's be evil here and let's really do all these nasty things. We have to stop being naive about that. And that's the skills that are going to be needed. Yeah. So things like uh, not using uh, data that will perpetuate bias against certain uh, minorities, uh, which happens every day. And most of the time, just by accident. Nobody says, I, I don't want to lend money. I don't want to provide mortgages to 
to this minority group. Nobody says that. But the data they use <laughs> has it built in and now perpetuated. So that's what we need a lot of people to start digging into and make sure that when we deploy AI, it represents the world as we would like to see it, not necessarily the way it is and has been. Well, that is incredible insight. I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I, as you can probably imagine, as someone who, when they were in their early teens, was writing code, the getting to talk to someone of your expertise and insight is this has been a this is really a lot of fun for me. So thank you so much for being here. I know that uh, our listeners are going to love hearing it and uh, just want to, we really appreciate you taking the time today. So thanks again and best of luck at Unity. Hope things go well. Thank you very much. And it was such a pleasure. And thank you for having me. Thanks to Danny for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his insight on AI, including his advice that it's important not to dismiss being inside the box. There's context, but staying inside the box, that's the problem. We wanna thank all of you who have embraced this show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We'd also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.